0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are having a very special double bill podcast looking at what a potential Biden administration could mean for Europe. I'm very happy to be joined by an all-star cast for this first of the two series of podcasts where we welcome Matt Duss, who was the Chief Foreign Policy Advisor to the Bernie Sanders 2020 presidential campaign, and Jeremy Shapiro, who is coming back to the podcast. He's Research Director for ECFR and our in-house expert on transatlantic relations. Thank you both for joining. I think everybody knows that something important is going to be happening at the beginning of November. It's still many months away, but lots of people are trying to work out what this most consequential of elections could mean for American foreign policy. We know, I think, quite clearly that Biden foreign policy will be different from a Trump foreign policy, but we don't know exactly how and where the biggest differences are going to be. It's also, I think, very interesting to think about how a Biden administration might differ from an Obama administration, particularly given that there is quite a lot of overlap in personnel, not least the election of Joe Biden himself. So why don't we start with that, Matt? Why don't you tell us what you think the main differences might be between a Biden administration and both what we have at the moment under President Trump, but also how it might differ from Obama's foreign policy.
1: Sure, happy to, and thank you for having me on. In the simplest terms, I mean, especially early on in the campaign, you saw Vice President Biden, you know, promoting himself as a return to normalcy or return, return to sanity or a return to basic competence. And I think, you know, that was obviously attractive given what we've all been dealing with over the past three and a half years with Trump and just the, you know, the whipsawing and, you know... a tweet in the morning, a tweet in the afternoon, what's the policy? No one knows. But I think something significant has been happening just in the months since Biden secured the nomination. And this is especially in response to, I think, the the protests that you saw across the country and indeed in other parts of the world, including the UK, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. And that was an acknowledgement, first in a speech by President Biden in early June, and then in some subsequent comments, and I think now reflected in the draft platform, that it's not enough to just go back to the way things were, that we need to build back better, as one of Biden's platform positions says, but also a recognition that so much of what Trump is is not an anomaly. He is a product of a status quo. He is a product of of trends in American politics and that the protests around George Floyd against police violence, against racism, against white supremacy, these are continue to be deep-seated things in American politics and that we need to address them in a deep way as we go about forging a new and durable American political consensus that can undergird any future foreign policy. So those changes,
0: is it worth going into a bit more detail? I suppose some of the most obvious shifts from a European perspective are the attitude towards the sort of forever wars in the Middle East, trade, where the Trump administration has certainly been much less pro-free trade than many earlier administrations, as well as, I suppose, around the whole question of China policy, which has become much more assertive. Those are the main blanks of things that you think might change?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you've got some fairly, you know, foundational principles at work here. I mean, for Trump, and I think this is something that Trump shares with a number of other kind of right-leaning, you know, authoritarian-leaning populists, whatever term we want to use. But he's part of a growing trend that we see in a number of democracies and beyond. And they see foreign policy in very zero-sum terms, which is to say that if someone else is winning, we must be losing, whereas I think Biden represents, and I think this is broadly shared across the Democratic Party, including in some Republicans, just the American way of foreign policy for the previous century has been based on a kind of positive sum engagement with the world that we all benefit when we build and strengthen and work in multilateral institutions. And I think we'll see a return to that. On some specific issues, I think climate change, if you look at the platform and the way that Biden has been talking about this more, I think a recognition that climate change is probably the major national security threat in this, you know, by necessity, this will involve a lot of collective action. That will require consultation and work in facilitating innovation across a number of international organizations, especially between the United States and Europe a return to Paris climate agreement. I think we see an element of this with the commitment to return to the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear agreement, which obviously has been a major source. You know, Trump's withdrawal from that agreement and then imposition of new sanctions around the maximum pressure policy has been an enormous source of tension between particularly the U.S. and our E3 partners. So I think returning to that and the broader diplomacy that they've committed to following with Iran and with the E3 and the P5 plus one, I think the implications of that are pretty serious. serious for the way that the United States rethinks our approach to the Middle East.
0: So Jerry, that all sounds great from a European perspective, but it also does sound like quite a similar set of instincts to those which President Obama was channeling when he was in power. Is that what we should be looking forward to?
2: Well, I think that it's important to sort of ground this conversation in the sort of reality of Donald Trump and the fact that he is so disruptive. And as Matt said, so focused on this very un-American zero-sum approach to international politics that almost anything can be an improvement and that the Biden administration or any democratic administration would certainly return to this idea that cooperative solutions are better. And that's a huge improvement from a European perspective, from the perspective of anybody else, but it does. Beg the question, if we sort of move beyond that huge improvement, you know, what are they going to want in that cooperation? And I think Matt is telling us something that is quite different than the Obama administration in terms of what the United States is going to be going out and looking for. It's definitely about cooperative solutions, but it's about cooperative solutions that can matter to the American public. It's about cooperative solutions that can make U.S. foreign policy relevant again to issues that are important to the United States. Issues even like race relations, but particularly economic issues like trade issues. There was this sense, and I think it was a sense among some Democratic voters as well as some Republican voters, that in the Obama administration, foreign policy was this sort of plaything of elites. And they were out there at big international conferences making trade deals and deals about Iran and things that people didn't really care about and maybe, in fact, weren't really for their interests. And I think the change from Obama to Biden, or at least the change that I think progressives in the Democratic Party are hoping to see is that there will be more focus on America in US foreign policy, even as it looks for cooperative solutions. And that will have an impact on the positions that it takes vis-a-vis Europe and vis-a-vis the rest of the world.
0: So, Matt, there have been lots of debates within the Democratic Party between progressives and more establishment figures on domestic policy. What do you think the main issues are going to be where progressives want to have more of an impact on foreign policy.
1: I want to totally agree with what Jeremy just said. And because, I mean, I think it also goes to what I was saying earlier. I think Trump obviously is divisive in so many ways. But I think his critique, if we can call it that, that he brought of the establishment and the sense that this was just an elite project with very little connection to the actual daily live resistance of most or reality of most Americans. That's something Trump capably exploited but he was able to exploit it because it is very real. when Trump in the early debates was saying the Iraq war was a huge disaster, most Americans believe that, even if the DC foreign policy establishment is only begrudgingly now starting to acknowledge it. But I think that is kind of a sign of a broader critique that is much more fully formed now on the right, but also on the progressive left. And here I think you've seen a very continually growing and much more mobilized and organized foreign policy, grassroots contingent that has been making its presence felt. And then you can see some of the products of the evidence here in some of the things and the commitments that the democratic platform makes. But I do think it is, as Jeremy said, is listen, we believe in cooperation, we believe in multilateralism. But the United States simply doesn't have the capacity to be the world's policeman anymore. We need to strengthen diplomacy. We need to find ways that we can use our still considerable power to facilitate cooperation. But first and foremost, we cannot be engaged year after year after decade after decade in these long term military interventions. And here I would just point to a couple of reports that came out last week from two very different think tanks, one from the Quincy Institute, which is a relatively new think tank that's coming from a transpartisan, I would call it more restraint. Realist oriented perspective, very critical of interventionism, talking about demilitarizing the U.S. policy in the Middle East. And another report from the Center for New American Security, a much more kind of centrist establishment think tank, but also talking about demilitarizing the U.S. approach to the region. And now these are different reports making some different recommendations, but the basic concept is the same, which is we need to seriously rethink our approach to this region and the way it has dominated America's global policy. And I think those two, on top of what you see coming out of this progressive grassroots coalition, I think represents a pretty clear paradigm shift and the actual details are still being worked out. But I think it is important for your listeners to know that.
0: But how much more demilitarization is possible? I mean, quite a lot of demilitarization has already been done in the Middle East, first of all, under Obama, and then that's obviously been sped up by Trump. What does this mean in practical terms?
1: Right, no, that's a good question. And I would say, I mean, demilitarized, sure, relative from having invaded and occupied two different countries in the Middle East on top of having military bases in multiple countries, the Fifth Fleet and Bahrain, I guess you can say, yes, there has been some demilitarization. But I think one of the things is looking toward other tools rather than the military one to help achieve our goals. This is going to require a very serious conversation, not only amongst foreign policy professionals, but with the American people about what our actual goals are. How is what we are doing in the Middle East or anywhere actually advancing the security and the prosperity of the American people? And I think that is where we're still not clear. And so this is where I go back to what I was saying at the very beginning is whatever is decided or whatever the policy ends up being in order for the United States to start to right the ship, so to speak, and rebuild some of the trust that has been lost, um, especially with our European partners. It has to be made clear that these policy decisions are rooted in a real and durable consensus that will outlast one presidency.
0: So if we think about some of the big issues on the agenda for Europeans, whether it's different theatres like Syria and and Libya, which create quite a lot of refugees for Europeans, as well as terrorism, or what's happening in Ukraine and the kind of security of, of Eastern Europe and how we deal with the Russian threats, how do we think that policy is going to change on those two big sets of questions?
1: Well, I think you are going to see, you know, much more pressure from both the left and right to any administration use of force or continuing uses of force that are based on very questionable authorizations. And here I think you see some commitments in the democratic platform with repealing the authorizations for the use of military force that were made after 9-11 and then for the Iraq war in 2001 and 2002. And a rethinking of, okay, how, you know, Because I think you saw this over the past few years and my boss, Senator Sanders, played a major role in this in in putting forward the War Powers Resolution on Yemen to get the United States out of backing the Saudi-led war in Yemen on the argument that this, you know, Congress has not authorized this engagement and hostilities. And so I think you've seen a lot more thinking going on. You know, including from someone like Congresswoman Barbara Lee, who was a, you know, one of the very few and early critics of the 2001 AUMF. So I think there's been a lot of energy put into Congress retaking this authority and you know, having a much more strict set of parameters about how and how often and how at what duration these military interventions take place.
0: And what about the whole question of Israel-Palestine? Is that going to be something where we see a radically different approach?
1: I think you'll see certainly different from Trump, but, you know, that's not saying much. I think Biden has signaled in various ways he's kind of a much more traditional, I would say, maybe old school Democrat on this, although I think, again, the platform does have some considerable improvements from previous language with regard to opposing settlements, opposing annexation, recognizing Palestinian rights alongside the rights of Israelis. But, you know, given some of the other challenges, you know, it doesn't seem to me that that issue will occupy the, you know, place high on the agenda that perhaps has for other presidents. Although I think even restoring some balance to that policy is a very good thing. And then Biden has signaled he intends to do that.
0: So, Jeremy, what do you think the most difficult questions are going to be for Europeans? You know, if President Biden is elected, comes over and says, we're going to rejoin Paris, we're going to sort out the mess around the JCPOA and Iran and go back to a kind of diplomatic process, and we're going to be much more ally-friendly. But in exchange, we want you to do X, Y, and Z, which is difficult. What are the X, Y, and Z going to be?
2: I think that the most difficult thing is going to be accepting or even understanding the terms of the new bargain that Biden might have on offer, assuming it is, as we said, which is if the U.S. is going to be doing as Matt and I implied they should, which is thinking a little bit more about the impact of U.S. foreign policy at home, being a lot more careful about military engagements, but also just the expenditure of resources abroad, then that's going to require, even in a cooperative approach, Europeans to step up a lot more. And that particularly going to mean some of the issues that you were just talking about in terms of Israel-Palestine or Libya or Syria, issues in the Middle East where I think the U.S. is just going to be less interested and less engaged. It might be supportive, it might be, it will be cooperative, but It's going to be up to Europeans to lead on those things. And I'm not sure they're ready for that. I think they're sort of waiting in some ways for a sort of restoration of a sort of Obama leadership paradigm, which may not be there. Maybe it will. But what Matt and I are saying is it probably shouldn't be. I think more specifically, the U.S. does seem to be gearing up, even in a Biden administration, to a sort of global and sort of ideological competition with China. And I think that They're going to see, again, with a more cooperative approach, an effort to enlist Europe in that somewhat faraway struggle from a European perspective. And that's going to entail some economic losses for Europe if they follow along, as we've seen a sort of preview of that in the Huawei case. I think that's the kind of thing that could continue under Biden. And the last thing I'd emphasize is one that sort of cuts against the grain of what we've been talking about, but it's Russia. I think that the Biden approach to Russia is likely to be a lot more hawkish and a lot fiercer than actually the Trump approach has been. And the Trump approach has been weirdly schizophrenic with a sort of administration which is deeply anti-Russian and a president which seems to be deeply pro-Russian. And the result has been mostly incoherence. I think you're going to see an alignment of a Democratic Party, which is very, very angry at Russia for its relationship with the Trump administration and with for its interference in U.S. domestic politics and a general anti-Russian mood in Washington translating into a very, very hawkish policy toward Russia, which I think some in Europe will love it, but others will be very uncomfortable with it.
0: We should maybe take those two separately and go into a bit more detail on them. Matt, do you want to explain a bit more about how you see China playing out in democratic policy? Because it's very clear that if you go back to your basic principle of foreign policy that's more related to the lived reality of ordinary people, certainly in the swing states that will be deciding what's happening in the presidential election, China looms very, very large. And I think there's a lot of support for the more assertive and hawkish stance which the Trump administration has been taking from people who worry about the China threat. How do you see The policy towards China changing under President Biden, how much pressure will there be from the progressive wing to get even tougher on some of the questions around labour standards and human rights and reshoring, etc.?
1: Right. There's kind of a few parts to this answer. I mean, one is, as you said, progressives have for a long time been very skeptical of this argument that was made all along that, well, we're going to open China up economically and we're going to have these trade deals and these mega corporations will move operations there and they'll make lots and lots of money. But ultimately, this will benefit human rights and there will be a political liberalization that will follow along. And those criticisms and suspicions have been borne out. That simply has not happened. I think everyone agrees with that now. And I think, yes, for other, for people in the Midwest and other words, and working people who have seen their jobs go to China, in some ways, this aspect is really played up by Trump. But again, this is something that he's able to exploit because the sentiment is very, very real. So it's again, it's something that he's exploited in his kind of broader attack against the out of touch elites, but he's able to do it because there is some validity to it. At the same time, progressives, while have been critical of this approach in the past, are also very, very cautious and wary of any kind of rhetoric or approach that plays into this new conflict. I think progressives are very aware I and mean, have been sounding an alarm for a long time on China's human rights abuses, whether in Tibet, whether in Xinjiang, with the Uyghurs, I mean, what we are seeing is absolutely horrific, but not wanting to play into the term new Cold War is often thrown around. That's inaccurate for a lot of reasons, but new, no, it's just a new kind of great power conflict with two powers going at each other in every way possible. They understand that, listen, there are a number of things on which we have to find ways to work with China, climate change being one of them, and, and China has its own interests in dealing with climate change and finding ways to work with the United States and others as well. So I think, yes, there are areas of policy where we need to find ways to push back and put pressure, whether it's sanctions, targeted sanctions, the kind of magnitsky style sanctions that are used on specific human rights abusers, but not wanting to play into this hostile, hawkish, set of arguments that washington is so good at falling into i mean washington is very good at finding a new kind of existential enemy of the moment and everybody runs in that direction but i would actually point to something that biden said over a year ago now when he was asked about it and trump has tried to make noise about this biden was asked about china and he gave this kind of casual answer saying listen we can handle it essentially and i actually think that's the right approach i mean let's recognize china represents a set of challenges of their china clearly has a vision for its power in the world and the way that the world should operate that is at odds with ours and with those of our allies. But it's something we should put in its appropriate context while recognizing that there are things that we need to try to do together.
0: And do you agree with Jeremy that the anger about Russian interference could lead to much more hawkish policy on Russia?
1: Yeah, I do agree with that. I think uh, there's a similar danger there. The threat that Russia represents or the set of threats that it represents is very different than what China represents. But they are real. But I would offer the same approach, which is like, let's understand it in its actual context and scope and not play into this hawkish discourse that ends up producing time after time, really bad counterproductive policy. So
0: We've talked about lots of countries, but there are various kind of functional issues that we should also think about. The Green New Deal has been an important part of democratic thinking in the last period of time. There are also big debates about digital policy and what to do with the kind of big platforms and whether to break them up and how to make sure they pay proper taxes and other things like that, which have also got important implications for transatlantic relations. And then there is the whole question of trade as a third big functional issue. How do you two think that those issues will play out in the transatlantic relationship? Are they going to be areas where a new transatlantic understanding could be built or are they
2: going to be very difficult issues even with a democrat in the white house (laughs) well it depends on which one you're talking about i think that on climate you know you have a real opportunity for a very cooperative agenda. And you actually even have an opportunity for a cooperative agenda with China. I think, you know, in fact, Europe, China, and the US really all do share the same goals. And if there would be a Biden administration would roughly share the same goals and do all recognize that climate is a problem that needs to be addressed cooperatively. And they need to, of course, they have to have big arguments over the distribution of costs and benefits in dealing with that problem, which is not an easy one, but I think it's one that is ripe for some cooperative solutions. So I could be optimistic there. I think the digital stuff is just going to be a lot harder. I think that the U.S. and Europe has very different interests here. And while there is quite an interest, particularly among progressives in the U.S., about dealing with the awesome power of the technology platforms, we saw that in front of Congress just okay. yesterday. I think that ultimately these are American companies. America is very proud of them. They have a quite distinct view of them in terms of how they should pay taxes and whether they should be broken up and all of those things, then Europe is likely to. and I think we're likely to see, regardless of who is elected in November, a continued conflict between Europe and, and the U.S. on digital and privacy issues. So we've
0: gone through quite a lot of the agenda. If the two of you were called in to advise Angela Merkel or Emmanuel Macron about what they should do between now and January next year to think about reinventing the transatlantic relationship, what advice would you have to
1: give? Sure, I mean... One thing I would say, as and I guess this is betraying my original training as a Middle East expert, is, as I was saying earlier, I think the implications of the diplomacy with Iran and rejoining the JCPOA and what that could mean for U.S. policy in the region and that of our allies, but also for the U.S.-Europe relationship. I think making clear, and maybe this is uh, Merkel and Macron or, or their ambassadors, just making clear how important this is and helping to support this once Biden takes office. I think the work that was done by the E3 in talking to Congress around Trump's withdrawal from the JCPOA, even though ultimately, of course he did withdraw from it. I think the work that was done by the ambassadors themselves to get out there publicly, but also in private talking to members of Congress and the DC foreign policy community about how important the agreement was to our shared interests, or at least as those interests had been defined before Trump was very, very valuable. So I think taking that approach, obviously being careful not to intervene or being seen to intervene in US politics, but just making clear this is part of our security concept and is one that we thought we shared and we hope we will continue to share in the future. I think that's an approach that could be very valuable.
2: Jeremy? You know, what I would want to say to them is don't wait and don't assume that even a Biden administration is going to walk in with European friendly policies And that it's going to be satisfied with a Europe, which sort of simply is sitting back and watching the United States deal with the world, which was roughly, I know they would resist that perspective, but that was roughly the pattern that American officials seem to see in the Obama administration. So what that means is... Be proactive in coming up with things that they want to do. Take responsibility for those things and offer cooperative solutions. Because as I said, the Biden administration will be genuinely cooperative. But it really is to a large degree up to Europe to offer cooperative solutions on the things that Europe cares about more than the U.S. does. And I think that particularly comes on on some of these Middle East issues like Libya and Syria and refugees, where the United States can be supportive of European priorities if Europe has a strong path forward. But if Europe is just sort of sitting there waiting for American solutions, even from a Biden administration, they're not going to be thrilled with them.
0: Great. Okay. Well, this will be one of the big questions that we ask in the second podcast on the Biden effect, looking at what Europeans are doing to prepare for it, how they're thinking about it and the future role of the US. So you're very much invited to join us for that discussion. But for this podcast, we have one thing left to do, which is our bookshelf segment. What's on your bookshelf at the moment, Matt?
1: Well, I'm going to say two things. One is sort of work-related and another less so. The first is a podcast called Blowback by a couple of journalists named Brendan James and Noel Colwyn. And it is a, a series just looking back at the Iraq War in its fullness, I guess, in the years in. The, leading up to the 1980s, U.S. policy through the 80s and 90s, leading up to the Iraq War, and then the war itself. And I think it's just extremely valuable in understanding the background, all the things that led into it, the mentality that allowed it to happen, and the continuing impact of it, not only on the region, certainly on Europe, but on the United States, on our politics. And it's well done, it's funny, it's vicious, and it's also highly educational, but also highly entertaining. I recommend it. And the other thing that I've been going back to is Miles Davis's autobiography which i read a long time ago and just grabbed it off my shelf a few days ago again and i'm really enjoying it once again so for all of your listeners who love music as i do that is really one of the best memoirs
0: fantastic what's on your bookshelf jeremy
2: I just finished a novel by Madeline Miller called Circe, which is a sort of feminist retelling of the Odyssey through the most infamous female figure in it, Circe, who was this enchantress who enchanted Odysseus. And so it's a sort of re-novelization through a modern lens of the story of the Odyssey.
0: Great. And I've been reading about American politics. I finally got around to reading Ezra Klein's book, Why We're Polarized, which looks at what All the different reasons for the big changes that we've seen in American politics over the last decades, going from demography to brain science to the fragmentation of the media. I hope that you've enjoyed listening to this discussion. If you have, please let other people know about it by tweeting about it, writing about it on your social media page or ours, and above all, by going to whatever platform you use to download this podcast on and giving us a good review and a five-star rating. We will put links up to all the publications that we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. But for now, from Matt Duss jeremy shapiro and myself mark Leonard. it's goodbye the research of ecf podcast is lucy halkenthal and our editor this week is gabrielle politzkater thank you very much